Hello everyone, this is Deborah Richardson and today I am putting the AP in Happy where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. This podcast will give a voice to accounts payable team members by talking about the growing reality of cyber attacks in their world and which vendor setup and vendor management techniques they can apply to protect the vendor master file from fraud. If you are looking for vendor process training for you or your entire vendor team, head over to my site at DeborahRRichardson.com and click on the Vendor Team Training Solved button to learn more about what is included in the annual plan and also to download a training schedule. Get the training that you and your team needs to avoid payment fraud, duplicate vendors, compliance fines, and more. The city of Portland made a confirmation phone call before a large wire transfer to a vendor, but they paid a fraudster anyway. To find out what mistakes were made and why the confirmation phone call is just not enough. Keep listening. Welcome to episode 202. A confirmation phone call was done and the city of Portland still lost $1.4 million to a fraudster. What went wrong? So recently I published episode 195, Two Truths That Break Your False Sense of Security with Vendor Confirmation Phone Calls and What Can Help. Now, this event with the city of Portland, unfortunately, is a classic example of why that confirmation phone call is not enough. But take a listen to that episode because it really follows a couple of examples that I've had with clients that, again, have implemented that confirmation phone call, but it just does not work. So let's talk about what happened with the city of Portland. So in April of this year, uh, and I believe it was April 25th of 2022, uh, looking at the article it was, uh, the city of Portland wired a vendor $1.4 million for construction costs, or so they thought. Luckily, by the time the next large payment was requested by the same fraudster, it was about a month later, they caught it. But it was only then that they realized that the first payment was fraudulent, right? And that's way too late to recover the money. So there are a couple of teams involved in the event. And one is the treasury team that processes the wire requests. And then the other is the housing bureau's finance department, which was tasked with confirming the banking information. So there are 
four things, uh, maybe three things in a suggestion. I don't know, four things I'll talk about that um, I believe went wrong. And again, one of them may be a piece of advice, but let's get started. So the first thing is the hacked vendor email. So that was the first thing that happened. What went wrong is the vendor employee uh, that was responsible for requesting the wire transfers likely fell for a phishing attack, provided their login information, and the fraudster was able to get in their email and send a request to the city of Portland for a wire transfer from within that employee's email. So I talked before about how uh, phishing attempts of the last two years, especially because we've all been either working from home full-time or hybrid, and they uh, the fraudsters know that uh, employees or team members are distracted. And so they've been taking advantage of that and uh, increasing the number of phishing emails. And one of the main goals of phishing emails is to get login credentials so they can do exactly what they did in this incident. So hacked vendor email and a request from within that vendor's email uh, actually went to the city of Portland requesting that wire transfer. Now, the second thing is, is when the city of Portland received that wire request, their treasury team did see a red flag. The red flag was the bank name that the wire transfer was being um, sent to or requested to be sent to was different than the name of the bank that they had been uh, routinely wiring construction costs to. So they asked the housing bureau for a confirmation call to the vendor. Now it's not clear whether or not this was uh, the bank that they were routinely sending uh, wire transfers to in the past is the same bank that's on the accounting system or, or ERP. It should be, but we all know that treasury can have their own system that houses or stores vendor, uh, banking information. So it's not clear if that's how, uh, if that, if the, uh, uh, banking that they were routinely, sending payments to match the banking that's on the vendor record. And I say that because that's actually the number four thing that I want to talk about. But in any event, uh, the city of Portland's treasury team noticed that the bank name uh, is was different or the banking was different than the banking they have been sending payments to. So they asked the housing bureau to uh, make that confirmation phone call to the vendor to verify it. Well, what went wrong? The confirmation call was made um, to the fraudster because the team member that was doing the confirmation used the contact information in the fraudulent email. Now, don't know if this was intentional, if it was just laziness. Uh, maybe they did not have the contact information on file. Uh, and so they looked to the, uh, look to the froster's email to get it. Not quite sure how that happened, but with a large project, 
Um, and this was a large construction or a housing project and they were making these large payments. It's not clear why they couldn't have gone if they didn't have the contact information on the vendor master file, which they really should have because you should always require an email address and a contact Um, But there would have been a website that they could have gone to to get a general number and then reach out uh, and ask for the appropriate person at the vendor's uh, place of business. Not sure why that was, was not done. Now, that can't be done in all cases. Sometimes these vendors are smaller vendors that do not have a website presence, right? And But in this case, that could have been done. And as a matter of fact, because it was a, lo- a large housing project, there would have been a contract as well. And I do recommend when you're creating uh, uh, these contracts, uh, make sure you have contact information inside the contract. And uh, AP needs to get a copy of that contract and needs to attach attach it to the vendor record, not only to make sure that the payment terms from the contract uh, are entered onto the vendor record, uh, but also as something that can be a reference in cases such as these, so you can get contact information. Whatever it was, they ended up contacting the fraudster, who of course uh, confirmed the, uh, that the banking was correct. Now, the third thing is once the uh, treasury team released the transfer, the uh, that team or the treasury team's office then requested that the Housing Bureau's finance team confirm that day that the vendor received the money, right? So fair enough. I actually do recommend that as well. It doesn't have to be a wire. It can also be an ACH. You can call a day or the next day and verify the vendor received the money, especially when you're paying something this high or uh, uh, that has a high dollar value. 1.4 million will definitely qualify to contact the vendor afterwards to make sure they receive the funds. Now, what they found is that no one at the vendor's place of business would confirm the transfer. Now, it wasn't clear from the article, which I will link in the show notes, but it wasn't clear from the article if the confirmation wasn't done or if it was requested, but the vendor never got back to them. So it wasn't quite uh, clear how that happened. But the bottom line is, is that they did not receive a confirmation from the vendor that they received the funds. So what went wrong following that lack of confirmation is that the lack of confirmation itself should have triggered a recall of the funds. The housing bureau's finance team should have told the treasury team that the confirmation was unsuccessful and the recall should have been, uh, should have been submitted. Now, I am not sure if the treasury team was told or not, but since they didn't find out until a month later, it's clear the recall was never submitted. So my guess is, is that they were never told that the confirmation was unsuccessful because if you remember, they were the ones that uh, originally had the red flag and reached out to the housing bureau's uh, finance team. Uh, And so 
I would imagine that if Treasury was told, they would at least follow it up and or submitted that recall, uh, that recall to the bank so they can get those funds back before it was too late. All right. So number four is uh, they missed another red flag. Now I'm calling this missing a red flag, um, but really this is kind of summary of everything that I say that should be done when you are uh, changing banking, but kind of in a twist here, because while the treasury team caught that a different bank account number was being used, uh, that should not have happened without following a process to update the vendor's banking in the accounting system or ERP. Uh, And it's not clear, again, I talked about it before, whether or not the banking that they had in the first place even matched the banking that was in the accounting system or ERP. But I will tell you, when I was a practitioner, uh, the treasury team did not have separate banking, uh, uh, different banking than what was in the accounting system or ERP. Yes, they had a different software that they would key it into, but we would actually update the uh, vendor's banking information And then we would generate a wire pay file. It wouldn't go anywhere, but it would be, uh, it was an an Excel file that can be uh, accessed or sent, not quite sure, but it was all in the system. It wasn't via email that could be sent over to treasury. And that's what triggered the wire transfer. And the, uh, uh, from that pay file, they would get the accurate banking. So treasury team should have, um, should not have had, different banking that was in the accounting system or ERP and the accounting system or ERP should have been updated before treasury sent the wire transfer. And had that been done, that would have hopefully triggered some authentication and internal controls to prevent that fraudulent banking information from being added to the accounting system or ERP. And so I'm going to briefly summarize what I've talked about in numerous episodes, webinars, uh, and it is all around having controls in place when you change vendor banking. The first one is a company branded ACH form. Have have that for your company. Uh, you can still accept, if you like, that um, uh, vendor banking on letterhead, uh, vendor banking on um, uh, bank letterhead, uh, and then also that voided check. But just know all of that can be forged. So if you do accept it, just attach it to that company branded ACH form. And on that company branded ACH form, require authenticating data, meaning if they are changing banking, then ask them for the existing banking information. You can also ask them separately for the last um, three. I had one um, potential client say they asked for the last 10 uh, payment dates and amounts. So if you think the existing banking is not enough, go for uh, further and ask them for the last three, five, 10, uh, uh, payment dates and amounts. And by the way, for that company branded ACH form, 
only give it to those vendors that have passed authentication. And I talk about authentication a lot. I'll put another link to the authentication uh, video that I have on my YouTube channel, which is basically just like your bank, where when you contact your bank, they don't just start talking to you about what you're called to talk about. They will authenticate you by asking you two to three identifying questions. And you need to do that to your vendors uh, so that you can verify you are actually dealing with your vendor and not a fraudster, especially uh, when there's a red flag and it's coming, the email is uh, uh, coming from your vendor's actual email because it could be hacked. So that's one. Um, so require the company branded ACH form. And then two, I already said it, require the existing banking. And if you want more um, proof or you want more uh, confirmation or authentication, also require uh, the last few payment dates and amounts. Uh, and then you can confirm, number three is confirm the banking uh, change using information on the vendor record. Now, I'm not a big fan of that confirmation phone call. I know a lot of people still have it. So if you do have it, combine it with something else, um, like one and two, uh, that company branded ACH form and require uh, authenticating data. Um, but if you do make that confirmation phone call, make it using some information on uh, the vendor record. And when you do make it, make sure that it is a valid uh, confirmation, not like what um, happened with uh, the city of Portland here, where they contacted uh, the actual uh, fraudster. And that's why uh, I noted earlier that I published episode 195, where I talked about what you should do when you make that vendor um, phone call. And that includes a script and what you can't uh, reveal. So make sure you take a listen to that. So that was number three, confirming the bank change if that's part of your process, but do it the right way. And then number uh, four is uh, follow up. Once you make that change on the vendor record, uh, send an email notification to the vendor that their banking information was changed. And actually you don't say banking information. When I work with clients, I come up with a template of verbiage, uh, send it to them and indicate that a change was made that could um, that affects their remittance uh, information. And this is the same thing that Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, you guys can tell what I've been doing for the past two years, but uh, any account that you have online, when there is a change made to that account, you get an email and some of these companies also send a snail mail notification as well to let you know that there has been a change and to tell you that if there it has not or if you did not initiate that change, they give you the contact information uh, to notify them that a change wasn't made. Now, depending on what the account is, they may tell you just go, if you didn't initiate that change to you know, go in there and uh, go back online and change your password. But in this case, you do want the vendor to contact you. And if that's uh, had it been done in, um, in this case, uh, even if that fraudulent request to change banking had gotten all the way through, then uh, the vendor, had they been checking their email, uh, uh, could have 
received uh, notification and could have contacted uh, the city of Portland to let them know that, no, they did not receive or they did not initiate uh, that change. But I think this one would have been stopped with um, authentication of the requester uh, by asking them the two to three identifying questions and then only then sending them the company branded ACH form and then requiring authenticated data on that form. And there have been reports that have shown that as soon as you push back and ask these additional questions, uh, the fraudsters will uh uh, terminate communication and just go on to the next victim uh, that is not asking those types of questions. So I hope this was a good uh, uh, learning or lessons learned from an unfortunate incident with the city of Portland. Uh, and hopefully if you don't have some of these processes in place, you see why they are important to put into place. All right. So thanks, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the 202nd, I think I'm saying that right, episode of the Putting the AP in Happy podcast, where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. Don't forget to check the show notes for the links mentioned in the podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and writing a review of my podcast on the platform that you use to listen. Stay happy. Stay happy.